It's Monday, April 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg has officially announced that he is running for president in 2020, adding to the nearly 20 Democratic hopefuls running already. He is young, he is gay, and he is rising in the polls fast. But can he last? Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for that and what we are expecting to be some big news this week, the release of the redacted Mueller report. Next, Facebook has long wanted to be the place for your most important life events, whether it's getting married or having kids, anything big. But what happens to a person's Facebook when they pass away? Luis Metzakis, security and online platform reporter for Wired, joins us for how it all works. Finally, when Brett Kavanaugh was elevated to the Supreme Court, many thought that a conservative takeover of the court was imminent. But an early decision so far, that hasn't happened. It has been stalled by a bromance between Chief Justice John Roberts and Kavanaugh, who have so far sided with the liberal justices more than the conservatives. Richard Wolf, reporter for USA Today, tells us about this Supreme Court bromance. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I actually think experience is one of the best reasons for somebody like me to be in this. I have more years of government experience under my belt than the president and more military experience than anybody to walk into that office on day one since George H.W. Bush. So I get that I'm the young guy in the conversation, but I would say experience is what qualifies me to have a seat at this table. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. You're joining us from the White House right now. You're getting ready for a garden tour. That's pretty cool. I am. Uh, in the spring, the Park Service does tours of the gardens on the grounds of the White House. So I am actually on the grounds if you hear the birds chirping. So, <laughs> straight from the White House. Excellent. Well, thanks for being here with us. Let's start off by talking about the latest person to jump in the race for 2020. This is South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's kind of like the hot thing right now. He's risen from like the bottom of the pack to a top tier 2020 Democratic front runner. He's like number three in certain polls. I kind of think of Beto O'Rourke, where he rose so high so quickly and kind of we don't hear anything about him now. It's all about Pete Buttigieg. So what do we know about him? Pete Buttigieg is our first sort of dark horse out of the gate to surprise people by doing better than expected. And you've done a great job of pronouncing his last name, but he does have a tricky last name so for <laughs> your re- listeners. Buddha, like the religious figure, and then judge, sort of like judge. You can put them together and it's Buddha judge. So he has garnered a lot more support than many people expected. And part of that is his unique story. He is a mayor, which normally doesn't catapult you into the ranks of presidential candidate, but was an army veteran, is a gay man who is married, openly married, and who has taken hold of that position of being both a follower of his faith, a Christian who talks about his religion, while quite liberal at the same time, a message that he is finding really appeals to quite a number of Democrats, particularly in the the Midwest. He's only 37 years old, so he's technically a millennial. If he were to ascend to the presidency, he would be the youngest president ever. And when I hear him speak a lot of times, he really tries to play this up. He talks about how he's from a different generation and he's ready to lead the country in this way. He talks about his experience, both being a veteran and being a mayor. He, I think he said he has, you know, he had more uh, executive experience than uh, the vice president at some point, just because he's been uh, mayor of South Bend for about eight years now. So these are the kind of things that he's using to prop himself up. I think that's important to notice that atypical biographies are potentially resonating with the voters. We saw 
President Trump get elected with a very atypical biography. And it's having some Democrats said, you know, we don't want our own Donald Trump. We don't want our own reality television star. But we are willing to look at people who have a slightly different biography and consider them for this job. How does he match up with some of the other candidates policy-wise? You know, I think that's important to notice the matchup question, right? We haven't seen any of them matched up together at this point. And we won't really until we get to that June debate. There'll be forums where they're all speaking back to back, but we won't see them together in a row. He has been liberal on a number of positions. He's been in line with a number of liberal positions, but he's also talked, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot about his faith, a lot about what it means to be a Christian. And that's really a distinguisher for him from the rest of the field. We don't really often hear, aside from Kirsten and Gillibrand, them talking about their faith and what their faith means to them. He is very smart. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He's very charismatic. He seems intelligent when he speaks. He seems like he's rational. How far can he go right now? Like I said at the beginning, is he just the flavor of the month right now? He's just the latest guy to become the media darling, let's say, as they were saying for Beto O'Rourke. Does he have staying power? I think that all of them have potential. I think we should not count anyone out, especially this early in the process. He is going to have to overcome some experience questions. And there is some criticism starting to percolate up that he, as a white man, is being taken more seriously than some of the women senators who we see running for president. And that maybe that this idea that a white guy would be better off to beat Trump is sort of catapulting him ahead. So he's going to have to answer some of that criticism that he is being given maybe more favorable treatment than some of the women or the minorities in the field. Let's move on to the Trump administration. The president really trying to figure out what's happening at the border. We know he's angry at the whole situation. And the latest thing is that he is reviving an idea of relocating detained immigrants to sanctuary cities, to Democratic districts that support sanctuary city policies, just to kind of stick it in their eye, it seems like. It's like, if you guys want them, we're going to put them all there for you. I think that the best explanation of our, our visual I saw this past weekend of how this maybe wasn't working the way President Trump thought it would were the covers of the New York Post and the New York Daily News. The New York Post was like, you take them. And the New York Daily News was like, give them to us. We're happy to take them. I think that the president thought that he could dump a bunch of poor and desperate immigrants in these cities and people would be like, oh no, we don't want these people here. But I think he found at least in the in the verbal response he's getting that people said they would rally behind these people. And, and I think that's already happening in America. I see examples of that on a regular basis. People who are giving money and their time and their homes and their resources to try to help these people who are seeking asylum in the U.S. I think if President Trump went and relocated all these people into these large cities, he might find that instead of being angry with him or it working, it would backfire a little bit and there would be real shows of welcome and helping and bringing these people into the country. The big thing that everybody is waiting for this week is the release of the redacted Mueller report by Attorney General William Barr. As soon as that thing goes live, that it's up to the races for all the spin. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be looking at it too for any little salacious details that they can kind of pin the collusion with Russia thing on. But really the most important legal questions all have to do with obstruction of justice because Robert Mueller did not want to make that determination. We're all on pens and needles waiting for it to come out. And when it does, it will be a flurry of news. We don't know how much of it will be redacted. We don't know what will be redacted. And we'll all be looking for evidence of either corroborating what Barr has said or some of the reports we've seen that Mueller's team was unhappy with the way that, that Barr summarized it.
the Rorschach test of reports, I think. You might see what you're looking for in it, no matter what side you're on. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They got a case where there was a girl and she was wearing a Halloween costume. And so her parents were so upset because this is the way they remember her in this Halloween costume and they couldn't change it. Joining us now is Louise Matsakis covering security and online platforms for Wired. We're going to be talking about Facebook and some new features they rolled out. For a long time, Facebook has encouraged its users to share all their major life milestones on the platform whether it's getting married, having children, getting new jobs. It's where a lot of people post most of their lives. There's like 2 billion users that log on to Facebook. But what happens when a user dies? Like what happens to their page after that? There's been stories in the news about sending reminders to loved ones. Hey, don't forget to wish somebody happy birthday after they've died. So Facebook has rolled out some new features to help with that. So what do we know about this, uh, Louise? Back in 2015, Facebook first tackled this problem and they introduced something called the legacy contact. So basically what happens now is that you can appoint someone if you pass away who will take over your account. They can't read your private messages. They can't delete anything, but they're able to post a new profile picture, a new cover photo, and they can make a pin post, you know, about information about a memorial service or just kind of a final message. That's what happened in 2015, but there were a lot of problems with that system. So earlier this week, Facebook announced that they were making some updates. The biggest one of which is that now there's going to be a tribute section, which is a different place where your legacy contact can moderate people sharing memories of you or sharing memories of a loved one who has passed away. So it's kind of like a post-mortem timeline. So it's separate from the person's normal timeline. And it's a place where after someone passes away, loved ones can share memories, other ways to remember them. So Facebook kind of saw a problem where people were doing this on the person's timeline after they passed away. So, you know, they post their last status update and then all of a sudden there were all these comments from people after they died, which is not really a great system, right? The BBC a few years ago reported that more than 30 million Facebook users were likely dead. So there's a lot of people that have accounts that are no longer active in this in the same way. Tell us the process because you have to memorialize an account before you can do some of this stuff. How do you actually memorialize the account and how has it changed? Because before uh, a lot of times people were memorializing accounts before loved ones even had a chance to do it. This is a source of a lot of pain and anxiety for I think a lot of people who lost someone close to them. So before Facebook would let anybody more memorialize an account. So let's say you die in a car crash, that car crashes in a local news article, an acquaintance or someone you don't even know very well could alert Facebook that you had died and that would basically freeze your account in time and memorialize it. So even if someone had your password, they wouldn't be able to access the account anymore because Facebook has verified that you passed away. But that was problematic for a lot of people because that memorialization process was happening maybe when the person's spouse or their child or you know their close friends weren't ready for that memorialization to happen and in some cases actually happening maybe they died as a victim of a crime or they died by suicide and there were some details that weren't really clear and that memorial process was happening where you know instead of just the person's name it would say remembering John Smith or whatever and that could be really painful so now Facebook is only going to let family and close friends do that memorialization process instead which I think is a good a good first step definitely. 
How does this work for Facebook users that are under 18? Because from the report, it says that they're not allowed to appoint legacy contacts. What this meant is that if someone under 18 passed away, their account was frozen and their parents couldn't do anything about it. So a Facebook manager who I talked to for the story told me about how they got a case where there was a girl and she was wearing a Halloween costume. And so her parents were so upset because this is the way they remember her in this Halloween costume and they couldn't change it, right? So now the system is that if your child passes away, you can post more them appoint yourself their legacy contact, which is much better than the system was before. Let's say your legacy contact also passes away. Then who gets to manage the, the, the page that's left over? Right now, there's not a backup account. So if something happens or two people died, both of those accounts are just frozen and there's nothing that can really happen. And I talked to Cheryl Sandberg, Facebook CEO, for the story, and she seemed genuinely surprised by this example, which I thought was kind of strange. And anyone who signed up for life insurance knows this is a question that gets asked, right? If your point of contact dies, who is your life insurance beneficiary? It's always a second person. Once a person's account gets memorialized, a legacy contact is appointed and all, and they can uh, you know, manage the tribute section, they still can't read any private messages or delete anything that was on that person's account before, do they have the option of closing down the account? Let's say they just don't want the page up anymore. Is that still a possibility? So there is ways to get the account deleted, but if you don't leave any instruction, Facebook is basically forced to balance the wishes of those ones who are grieving with the privacy wishes of the person who passed away. If you didn't put that in your will, if that wasn't something that you formalized with your legacy contact, then Facebook can't necessarily get your account deleted. It's just going to stay there because there might be a family member or a friend who wants those memories of you, even though it's now you've died. So it's a hard balance that Facebook has to strike. Louise Metzakis covering security and online platforms for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. court must put an end to extreme partisan gerrymandering so that the American people can trust, trust that their vote will always count. Joining us now is Richard Wolf, Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today. We're going to take a little check into the Supreme Court. You wrote an article recently about a bromance that's happening there. When Brett Kavanaugh got confirmed to the Supreme Court, everybody thought, oh man, there's more conservatives now on the on the Supreme Court. It's going to take over completely all the decisions, but that hasn't really borne out just yet. Although, you know, it's only been about six months or so. It's There's still more time and more court decisions to get through. But there's a little bromance happening between John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. Tell us a little bit about this. You're right. We're only about halfway. We're a little more than halfway through the timing of this Supreme Court term. We're less than halfway through the actual decision making. And so anything can change. And we would expect it to change. We would expect Associate Justice Kavanaugh to probably return a little more uniformly to his conservative And Chief Justice John Roberts probably eventually will. I mean, these are two conservative justices. So the piece that I wrote is not intended to say, hey, everybody, this is completely (laughs) different from what you would have expected. But for the time being, what is happening, and there's certain motivations probably afoot, what is happening is that Roberts, the Chief Justice, and Kavanaugh, the newest justice who went through this contentious confirmation hearing last fall that everybody can recall, are behaving a little more moderately than the other three conservatives and often aligning with the four liberals on the court. A lot of the cases in which they're doing it are not all that significant, but it is significant when you look at the numbers in in terms of formal merits decisions where they're ruling on a final decision on a case. Kavanaugh and Roberts have been together 24 out of 25 times. 
Whereas Roberts, I think, has differed with some of the more conservative justices, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's first nominee, eight or nine or 10 times, Kavanaugh maybe about six times, differing with those more conservative justices. So just numerically, which was sort of the basis of this piece, there's a very big difference. Now, what's going on in terms of motivation is the chief justice does not want this court, and he's all but said so, to be perceived as a 5-4 conservative court where slam dunk, the conservatives are going to stick it to the liberals. And, and this really goes back to when he switched his vote. There's a new book out by my former colleague, Joan Biskupic, on, on the chief justice, and it goes chapter and verse through how he switched his vote in the 2012 Obamacare case to make sure that didn't happen and ended up aligning with the liberals. He's very wary of the court as an institution being perceived as nonpartisan and just deciding things based on the law. Some conservatives would say that leads him to not decide things based on the law when they would come out five, four conservatives over liberals. Now, that does happen on occasion, and it's happened a couple times this year. But he's concerned about the image of the court in general. Kavanaugh perhaps is concerned about the image of the court in general because of the way his confirmation hearings ended, but he's also probably looking to keep a low profile. And he has a lot in common with the chief justice. They both come from the same D.C. appeals court. They both are residents of the District of Columbia suburbs in Maryland. They have similar backgrounds. They're a decade apart, but they have similar backgrounds. So there are inklings still to be proven that Kavanaugh may turn out to be a less conservative justice than, say, Neil Gorsuch or Clarence Thomas. And the concern is there, you know, about being perceived as a political branch of the government. I mean, in this climate right now, anything can be politicized and turn around right away. So, I mean, it might be smart for them to kind of take that approach. Tell us a little bit about Kavanaugh's demeanor so far and some of the times that they have, Roberts and Kavanaugh, have sided with the liberal justices. Kavanaugh sits off to one side, very attentive, very studious, asking questions of both sides, very much like the chief in that regard. Sits next to Associate Justice Elena Kagan, one of President Obama's nominees. They are very close, and you can tell by their joking around relationship. Kagan is a liberal force on the court, very powerful, smart, astute justice, and she seems to probably have an interest in seeing if she can sway Kavanaugh, uh, probably goes on vice versa as well. What are some of the big upcoming cases that we're still expected to hear more about? The biggest cases, one of which is still to be argued in a couple of weeks, and then a couple of others that have been argued, but there haven't been decisions. The one that's going to be argued later this month is on the administration's effort to add a question to the 2020 census on citizenship. And that's kind of a crucial issue that easily could divide the liberals from the conservatives. The Trump administration wants to ask about citizenship for the first time since 1950. Right. And challengers, including the states of California and New York and immigrant rights groups, don't want them to do it because it would probably suppress the count among non-citizens. There are a couple of cases that are pretty interesting that have been argued already, and we expect decisions in the next couple of months. One is on partisan gerrymandering. Those are the cases from North Carolina and Maryland that basically go to something the court has been unwilling in the past to insert itself in, which is if there's some element of the way congressional and state legislative districts are drawn by state legislatures that simply goes too far and is too one-sided, are likely to be decided the way the Supreme Court has decided in the past, which is we just don't, don't see that this is our role to decide. It's distasteful what majorities in state legislatures do, but they all do it. And it's hard to see the justices, the conservative justices, stepping into that one, but they accepted both cases and we're waiting on the decision. And then 
there's an interesting religious liberty case out of Maryland in which they have to decide whether a mammoth World War One memorial in the middle of an intersection is an intrusion on the separation of church and state. It's a World War One memorial, but it's shaped like a giant Latin cross. And if you drive by, all you really notice is there's a giant Latin cross in the middle of this town rather than that it's actually there because it was put there by the American Legion 90 years ago. So that's an interesting case. Richard Wolf, Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.